0: you like audiobooks or audio shows check out a free trial of audible just click the link in the description you are listening to mind shock true crime this is your host bruce mcguire and maxwell powers and jr and this is jonestown episode two commune or concentration camp this is a dark dark series into the supposed mass suicide of The People's Temple Cult in Jonestown, Guyana. And this occurred, we just passed the anniversary. So this occurred on November 18th, 1978. There are quite a few unknown variables in this case, which many people know of. For some reason, Maxwell never even heard of Jonestown or drinking the Kool-Aid, where that expression comes from. But uh, Jr. has been slightly crazy. Wait, 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 wait! The Kool Aid, wait,
1: the Kool Aid thing came from Jonestown. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, that uh, drinking the Kool
1: Aid uh, is actually a direct that that comes from Jonestown. Drinking the Kool Aid means that you know, like you, you're basically uh, putting yeah. your life in your hand. Yeah, but uh, I, I, well, ironically, that's uh, great
2: because I always I always hear like, "Don't drink the Kool Aid," "Don't drink the Kool Aid," but it comes from that Jonestown.
1: Yeah, it comes from Jones In fact, when the Jonestown residents actually drank it, it was actually Flavor Aid, it was not Kool-Aid, because um, Jones felt that uh, Flavor Aid was more economical in price. But that said, like, yeah. Um there there were a couple of boxes of, of Kool-Aid during a video that he shot uh, to entice people to come down to Jonestown, which is why it it, it garnered the uh, Kool-Aid moniker.
0: Huh. Yeah, any place, any place that has Kool Aid, even if it's in South America, that's where you need to go. Maxwell, you don't remember having this conversation on episode one of Jonestown regarding the Kool Aid? We had this exact same conversation. Oh shit, I forgot. <laughs> Maxwell Army. All right, so okay. <laughs> so Still waiting for my
1: T-shirt, Bruce. Like you know,
0: they're coming out. They're coming out. You gotta gotta be patient there. So you brought attention to the possibility that this was no suicide and it was a mass murder.
1: Oh, That's, that's correct, Bruce. Um, I've actually, um, I, I hate to say this, but to the tune of your tax dollars, I've actually done a, a, a lot of research uh, regarding uh, the Jonestown Project and other cults. Again, we're not going to talk about the exact agency I work for and in what reason or what regard I work for, but I've studied ex- extensively cults. For the bearer of my career after I uh, got out of the military, so I went to work for the federal governmental service. So I know a lot about this case. Was that,
0: was that the Park Service, or you still can't comment?
1: I'm not. I'm not going to comment on it. I mean, you know, like as far as you know, like I was clearing a field to make raid for another cult. But um, I will say that uh, yeah, he, I know a lot about I know a lot about cults, and I know a lot about this case. And when it comes to Jonestown, a lot of people focus on the last you know, several hours of their existence. And I feel that this is very detrimental to the actual story itself because 900 people died. it. That number is disputed, in fact. There's 909, 913, because there were actually several undocumented Guyanese that, that perished in the, the tragedy as well. But the long and the short of it is, Bruce, is that these people were actual people like me and you. I don't know how many people were in your high school. I'm guessing it wasn't, you know, more than a couple hundred people. Imagine almost a thousand people died and in, in, in less than six hours. You know, there's a tremendous amount of loss in that span of time. There was a certain life force that ended that day, and there was a story behind those people. The mainstream media focuses on the last several hours. They don't focus on the build-up,
0: and the build-up is the most important part of the story. Yeah, and we will be going into life at the commune, or what some refer to as more of a camp. So, where there was no escape and people lived under horrid conditions and brainwashing and mind control of all kinds. So, just as a quick overview, I'm going to read two articles. So, people like Maxwell, who might be new to the case, will have a a primer of sorts. So this is this is from the Daily Mail article written by David Jones. Return to camp suicide 30 years on. Could the nightmare of Jonestown happen again? It was a horror that defied all reason. One thousand Americans brainwashed into taking cyanide by their deranged leader. The jungle stretches out below our twin-engine plane like some vast, luxuriant carpet that seems to swallow up everything in its path. Yet some events are so heinous that nothing can obliterate them, and the unspeakable horrors that unfolded here 30 years ago next week fall into that category. Below us, on the northern tip of South America, 914 brainwashed men, women, and children died in agony after poisoning themselves on the orders of a power-crazed cult leader who convinced them he was the second coming. The place where they fell was Jonestown, a remote commune, in northwestern Guyana, named after its founder, Jim Jones, the evil architect of this terrible tragedy. He promised them it would be utopia, but it became a mass graveyard. To Jones, their deaths were an act of revolutionary suicide. To those few who were fortunate enough to escape and tell their story, it was mass murder. History remembers it as the Jonestown Massacre, and excluding acts of war and natural disasters, it was the biggest single loss of life in modern times. The man who flew me there this week was among the first to have witnessed the nightmarish Before scene. Before 9
1: 11.
0: Yeah. The man who flew me there this week was among the first to have witnessed the nightmarish scene that remained after the self inflicted carnage of November 18th, 1978. Now, age 53, Jerry Gouvea was an army pilot who had been sent on a reconnaissance mission the day afterwards when the bodies were still scattered thickly across the ground. 30 years on, the scenes he saw are still fresh in his memory as we fly above the jungle. Having departed from the capital, Georgetown, we have been droning above the unbroken green canopy for almost an hour when he banks sharply left and swoops over an oval-shaped clearing. Here, there are no towering trees or torturous creepers, just a sprinkling of sun-dappled daisies. This is the place, Gouveia, says grimly over the intercom. When I first flew over here, it looked as though someone had laid out lots of brightly colored clothes on the ground. It was only when I dropped lower that I could see it was actually a mass of people. It was quite surreal, like being in a dream. I thought they must be playing a practical joke. I kept expecting them all to jump to their feet and shout, Gotcha. The pilot adds, isn't it strange that the vegetation has grown back so thickly everywhere else, but in the area where all those people died, there are just those little daisies. It was indeed strange, but also fitting, for the community we were revisiting was created as Jim Jones's warped vision of the Garden of Eden, and the 1,000 or so devoted souls who followed him into the steaming tropics were the start of his warped new human race. Yet 30 years later, many questions about Jonestown remain only partly answered. Who was Jones, and what was life like in the jungle community built by his followers? Why did they believe in him so unquestioning? And were their deaths a random act of madness, or could a similar horror ever happen again? The son of an abusive alcoholic father, James Warren Jones, was born in 1931 and raised in an anonymous town in Indiana, where he is said to have killed his friends' pets so that they would pay him to dispose of them in his first business venture, an animal burial service. That's messed up, isn't that? Well, I mean, let me
1: let me before 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 you read the other article, uh, Bruce. I mean, you know, Maxwell. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I I have a couple things to add to that before you read the second article.
2: Um. No, I'm good. i just, I'm good. Okay.
1: First of all, he, it wasn't an anonymous town. Um, I'll, I'll get you the actual name, but uh, when he was a child under the age of 12 years old, yeah, he did, in fact, have an animal burial service. Several uh, child friends of Jim Jones that thought he was a very weird kid growing up, and, in fact, it was said that Jim actually killed animals just to bury them as a child. The second thing is, is I just want to make a remark to the daisies, a lot of people don't understand this, but within hours of the Jonestown cult, actually, you know, the massacre w- within itself, the surrounding locals actually started to pillage the village that, you know, of Jonestown. Um, it was very, it wasn't like, you know, they were just, you know, stealing supplies and stuff. However, there is a report, and I'll get you the exact story uh, later on, Bruce, uh, that we can go over in detail. But there was a 20-year-old that was said to have taken his little brother into the uh, Jonestown complex and actually cut the daisies in order to sell them at the street corner for money. And uh, when he cut the daisies uh, that particular night, he actually passed of a heart attack from that reason.
0: Okay, continuing with the article. By his early 20s, he and his wife, Marceline, had founded their first evangelical church, and by most accounts, he appeared a well-meaning local pastor. They also became the first couple in the state to adopt a black baby, rather a departure from Jones' father, who was in the Ku Klux Klan. They later expanded their rainbow family to include a Korean child. But the seeds for destruction were planted when the Joneses moved to to Northern California at the height of the Cold War, after reading that it was one of the few places in America that would be safe if the US came under nuclear attack. Via po-
1: Esquire magazine. What was that? Via Esquire Magazine.
0: That was that was who published that article. <laughs> that seems kind of strange. California is closer to Russia than the Midwest. But anyway It was
1: it was it was yeah. I mean I, I can get you the article from Esquire.
0: At the time, America was torn by the Vietnam War and civil rights disturbances, and their so-called People's Temple became a refuge for the disaffected. How the father conned so many. A handsome, well-groomed figure with slickly parted black hair and painted on sideburns a white robe, and Hollywood sunglasses, which he even wore in the pulpit, Jones promised to fulfill all their needs. He told followers to call him father or daddy, and they were his darlings. He convinced them he was a reincarnation of historical figures among them, Jesus and Lenin, and offered them salvation. In their desperation, To find an alternative to the rampant materialism, social inequality, and racial bigotry of the times, Jones' disciples were easily hoodwinked. Such was the power of his personality that the Californian establishment were taken in by him, too. He was courted by politicians such as the mayor of San Francisco and President Jimmy Carter's wife, Rosalind. By the summer of 1977, however, an investigative magazine journalist raised questions over his propriety. It was suggested that he was a charlatan who was abusing his position to enrich himself and take advantage of his flock. The article prompted his swift departure to Guyana, whose socialist government welcomed him with open arms, not least because he promised to deposit $500,000 of the fortune he amassed from his members' dull checks in the nation's empty coffers. His darlings followed him unquestioningly. They decamped Georgetown by the plane load and reached Jonestown, which is inaccessible by road or by boat. Only after they had swapped the comforts of California for a life of toil in the unbearably humid wilds of South America did some begin to see their messiah for the morally degenerate, drug-crazed megalomaniac he really was. They also came to realize that his promised land was a concentration camp designed for the greater glory and enrichment and sexual gratification Of its dictator. The father would regale them about the injustices of capitalism over a Big Brother style loudspeaker as they worked from dawn till dusk in the snake infested fields. Yet by then, most of his followers were so cowed that they were in no mental state to question him. The sheer size and scale of Jones's jungle fiefdom becomes apparent on entering the 3900-acre site 6 miles from the isolated mining town of Port Kaituma in Northwest Guyana. On first inspection, Little remains of Jonestown's infrastructure, which included rows of communal dorms for the disciples, a radio room from which Jones delivered his rambling propaganda broadcasts, his own relatively luxurious personal quarters, and a big central pavilion around which the suicides or murders were orchestrated. Since then, much of it has been destroyed by fire and it has been often looted by local villagers, though no one appears to have found the gold nuggets rumored to be stashed in the labyrinth of tunnels Jones is said to have dug in preparation for the nuclear attack he prophesied. Are there tunnels under Jonestown? This is the first I'm hearing of it. Well, I mean, you know, Bruce, uh,
1: the, the ironic part uh, and I'm glad you brought this up, actually. This is one of the mysteries of Jonestown. There was an incredible amount of cement that was delivered to Jonestown, that if you look at the structures, which we've never utilized in the building of the above ground structures. There's an un- unbelievable amount. In fact, uh, I'll get you the exact people that discussed this in various articles and uh, various uh, people that talked about this, that there were actually Guyanese that discussed their opinions on this particular issue because there was an unbelievable amount. I mean, we're talking about 10, you know, like, millions of pounds worth of concrete that was delivered to Jonestown. And if you look at them, a lot of the huts, there's, you know, the Quali huts, there's there's, there's various huts. A lot of them are just wood, and, you know, some of them are actually built straight from Palm, but there's no concrete. So there were definitely underground bunkers that were constructed. Uh, we can go into that. There are... There are no maps that actually exist of the Bunkerage itself. However, that area has actually been tested post Jonestown for minerals, and there's been a lot of evidence that it actually was a very mineral-rich area. I mean, they they couldn't grow anything, even though it was an agricultural project, but they were sitting on a lot of actual physical minerals and bullion and and, and platinum that, that are present on that actual location in there.
0: Uh, any thoughts on uh, what J.R. just said about the tunnels under Jonestown? That's pretty cool. I don't know why it's necessary. I mean,
1: they have a community
2: upstairs, and why do they need tunnels for it? Well, well, they were worried about nuclear attack.
0: Every city, every city has mysterious catacombs underneath it. Is this a Hollow Earth conspiracy? Did Jim Jones know about Hollow Earth? Jones was obsessed with nuclear war. That's, in
1: fact, why he moved his population from Indiana to Redwood. Because, according to Esquire magazine, which... By the way, when you spoke about the second article of this particular podcast, the uh, scathing article that forced him to permanently relocate to Guyana was published by New West, by the way. Yes, yeah, so regarding this particular incident, Jones was completely obsessed with nuclear war and the idea of almost a uh, fallout video game style interplay uh, that would take place within, you know, five to eight years when he moved his uh, commune to uh, Redwood Valley.
0: All right, so let me finish this article. Rooting around in the undergrowth, however, one can still find macabre clues to the... the death barrel. The death barrel. You can still... They, the, the Guyanese were actually very co- creative, uh, Bruce. Uh, they, uh,
1: they looted a lot of different things. They stole the wood from the houses, they did all kinds of things, but ironically, they actually left the death barrels of cyanide in their exact places. And today, in Jonestown, you can find a tractor that, uh, you know, I mean, it's obviously, it's rusted and broken down, because it's been almost 40 years, that that, uh, they shot Congressman Lee Orion on. You can find various different things that are part of the conspiracy, including the death barrels filled with cyanide uh, to this day they still are rusting in the jungles of Diana. They left them there. They didn't want to touch them.
0: Rooting around in the undergrowth, however, one can still find macabre clues to the kind of place this once was. In one corner, I stumbled upon The Box, a 15-foot-deep mud pit where people were often left for days on end for misbehaving. This was certainly not the only form of brutal punishment, according to Deborah Layton, who is among the first defectors and has since revealed Jonestown's dark secrets in a powerful memoir, Seductive Poison. She described how old people were sometimes stripped naked for disobedience and children were dangled by the feet down a well for the slightest infraction, such as complaining of homesickness. One day, she watched a 66-year-old disciple named Charlie being ritually humiliating for daring to fall asleep during one of the father's interminable lectures. Incensed, Jones instructed the man's own son to drape a boa constrictor around his father's neck and leave it hanging there. Jones's brutal mind games, but his preferred method of control was insidious mind games. Families and friends were taught to report one another's transgressions, and people were encouraged to purge their guilt by confessing at nightly mass meetings. To heighten the climate of fear, Jones regularly dragged his exhausted minions from their beds in the early hours to act out his so-called white Nights. During these eerie alerts, alarms blared and they were summoned to battle stations, bearing knives, sticks, and in some cases, rifles, on the pretext that Jonestown was under attack from some outside invasion force. As Jones constantly warned them that the CIA was planning a raid in which everyone would be rounded up and shipped back to a U.S. concentration camp. No one questioned these drills until the all-clear sounded and they were permitted to troop back to their bunks No one knew whether the attack was for real in Today's information-driven world of course this level of ignorance seems preposterous even in the jungle but in 1978 There was no internet and the only radio in Jonestown belonged to the father the sole source of contact with the outside world Then there was sex and here, Joan's capacity for manipulation and hypocrisy knew no bounds. From the pulpit, he branded making love a fatal weakness and banned couples from sleeping together until their commitment had been proved by a lengthy trial period, yet he was a shameless sexual predator. Officially, he lived with Marceline, whom he married at 18, But long before the great exodus to Guyana, he more regularly shared his bed with his chief mistress, Caroline Layton. He also routinely took whichever of his darlings caught his eye, the younger the better. He would lure these innocents into his room and have his way with them, knowing they dared not resist. Then, at the next meeting, he would single them out and force them to admit they had seduced him. Their peers were urged to hurl insults and even beat and spit on the hapless girl. What do you think about all this, Maxwell?
2: That's some uh, that's some good manipulation right there. Um, it's a good strategy. Cause now because now what happens is like what happens is the uh, the other people or the other girls. is kind of like it gives it gives the guy uh, preselection when it comes to. So I don't know if that, that just. It just gets the other women jealous that they want to jump up too. So it's a good, it's a good strategy to collect, uh, to build up the cult. Meanwhile,
0: Jones had become hooked on prescription painkillers and would even confiscate his members' medication for his own use. One of Jonestown's quartermasters, Laura Call, who was fortunate enough to be away in Georgetown when the suicide order went out, told me there were rumors that Jones was also suffering some unspecified brain disorder towards the end of his life. If so, this may help to account for his bloated appearance and slurred words, and perhaps even the rampant paranoia that was making him increasingly irrational by the autumn of 1978. As Jones became even more unhinged, believing an invasion was imminent, he prepared to stage his own version of the final solution. Now life at Jonestown descended into dark farce. Uh, J.R., do you know anything about his psychological condition if he had one? Well, I do, Bruce. I mean, let me me backpedal a little bit. I mean, I know you
1: don't want me to go on a rant and and a rave because we're going to do more podcasts regarding this. But let me just say this. Regarding the... uh, where children were hung from their feet but to any person that listens to Mindshock if they want to actually go out and listen to the videotapes themselves the audio tapes themselves rather Jones regarded that as he called it Bigfoot so I mean there were actually people at the bottom of the well that the children were hung at and they had sticks and various instruments that they would probe the children with while they were hung from their feet so he, he called it you know going you know to, to, to visit Bigfoot which I thought you know because we've done so many Bigfoot podcasts, you'd be interested in.
0: Jay, other things. Weird, uh, there's some really weird interference. Are you next to like a computer or something? No, I'm. I'm. No. This sounded like a 56k modem dialing up just a second ago.
1: No, I mean, I'm, maybe that's you know, maybe that's the temple kind like, of getting you know in the way of the truth.
0: <laughs> are they still so? When you just made that comment about the temple, are they still? Is the current? Like what's the current climate around the so called official story? are still are they still maintaining that this was like well, a genuine a genuine commune with with positive interests that just went wrong or what's, what's well, well well we'll we'll get to that in a second. Let me just clarify the other things of this particular article that you were talking about. The
1: second thing is is regarding Marceline Jones. Marceline was basically propped Jim during the Indiana era of his She was, they were the first uh, people to uh, adopt an African-American in Indiana. And Marceline was regarded, especially by Jim Jones's only biological son, Stephen Jones, as a true giver and a true humanitarian. In fact, uh, Marceline Jones, to her credit, was actually, uh, when Jones was, he was appointed by uh, George Moscone after he got George Moscone elected Uh, was put in control of the Housing uh, Commission for uh, San Francisco. Marceline was in charge of uh, making sure that the nursing homes were up to snuff. She was an official representative for nursing homes. By all accounts, Marceline Jones was a true giver when it comes to this. Carolyn Layton, and Carolyn deserves her own separate podcast, as does Marceline, but regarding this, by the time they actually made it to Guyana, Marceline, who was his actual wife, had taken a complete sidestep to the process. In fact, on the final death tape, when Jones is screaming mother, 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 there's reports that Marceline was actually restrained in the end as the babies were being euthanized by the poison.
0: So what do you know about Jones's psychological condition if he had one? Is that, is, what information is there on that? What a lot of people don't understand about Jonestown, like I said, like you know, the mass media
1: focuses on the actual final four hours of the death. But what they don't understand is Jones lived in his own cabin, separated from his own wife. His wife lived in her own private cabin in Jonestown, which, again, is almost a form of isolation. Everyone else was living in a communal environment. She had her own cabin. But at that same time, she was shunned because Carolyn who was his true mistress, who remained involved in the killings to the very bloody end. And the more the more family was very heavily involved in the actual euthanization of the people to the very end. His wife, Marcy, lived in her own cabin, and the only benefit she had beyond the scope of the fact that she was Jim Jones' wife was that she was provided an air conditioner. <laughs> so that was her gift. After everything that she had gone through with her husband, that was her gift. She had her own private cabin with an air conditioner in the jungle. So that was her. Well, the that air, was air, what conditioner, she was given.
0: air conditioners probably comes in handy with the humidity is supposedly very, very extreme. Yeah,
1: I mean Diana. I mean he claimed it was like this, like constant seventy degree temperature. If anyone has ever been, and I've I haven't necessarily been stationed there, but I've crossed the border multiple times. Let me tell you something. The humidity and the heat in that particular part, of, I mean, they're very close to the equator there. It, it, it's hot. I mean, that was one of the reasons why their agricultural prog- project was doomed from day one. The heat alone, like, they couldn't grow anything. Forget the soil. They couldn't grow anything based on
0: the heat. So, All right. So, well, you still didn't answer the question about uh, Jones' possible psychological condition. Oh, well, I'm sorry, Bruce. Um, Jones Jones definitely had a psychological condition. I mean, he, his
1: doctor, you know, the only doctor supposedly that exists in Jonestown, even though if, you know, again, then your viewers are free to listen to the evidence. I mean, you know, I want the viewer's input here. I mean, because, you know, like, this is, this is, this is where I help Mindshock. This is where I know something about the cases involved in Mindshock. You know, the the viewers are free to listen to the evidence available to them. Jones references other doctors that, to this day, are never documented. There's no evidence. There's no anything. But their one doctor, Larry, not only was he not qualified um, as a doctor, even though Jones made constant references over the loudspeaker that he was being, you know, accepted into this academy and that academy, um, and he delivered babies, to his own credit. I mean, you know, being not licensed, I think that's pretty pretty cool, actually. I mean, you know, he started out as a heroin addict on the street, and Jones took him in. So the fact that he's able to l- deliver babies in the end is, is actually quite impressive. But that said, he started out as a heroin addict. Jones was taking speedballs regularly. I mean, speedballs are a combination of heroin and cocaine. Injected into your body, so I mean and he was getting them frequently during the day So the fact that his voice was slurred the fact that like you know there were problems I mean he wore sunglasses for a reason beyond the scope of why he was on drugs quote-unquote He claimed that he had the the light of God So if he didn't wear sunglasses his eyes could burn lasers into your body without wearing sunglasses to protect you so that's why he wore those sunglasses But the reality was, was she was a fucking addict. So, I mean, he clearly had a psychological problem at that point. Whether it was mental, whether it was drug-induced, that's something for a, a dedicated podcast.
0: Okay, so... The final solution, convinced that Guyana was no longer secure, he decided he must lead his darlings to a new homeland inside the Soviet Union, and duly sent his most attractive female envoys to the Russian embassy in Georgetown to plead for safe passage. He also made overtures to the Cubans. But of course, neither country would accommodate him. In his addled mind, time was fast running out, so he dispatched couriers to secrete millions of dollars in offshore bank accounts. Caches of weapons and cyanide were smuggled upriver to the commune using the People's Temple's boat, the Cujo. Whenever Jones discussed these matters with his inner circle on the shortwave radio, they were instructed to use code words. Guns were Bibles, for example. The U.S. was Rex, and Cuba was netty. To ensure his followers were ready for mass suicide, he staged a series of practice runs designed to test their loyalty and courage. Whether or not most people believed he would carry out the act, Deborah Layton certainly did. She warned as much in a sworn statement to the U.S. authorities after making her daring dash for freedom in May 1978. With breathtaking complacency, no action was taken. Now, this is very controversial, and it's not spoken about. I mean, I've watched quite a few media reports, and I've read quite a few articles on Jonestown before this one. It is not first and foremost up front that Deborah Layton had this affidavit where she warned of a mass suicide. Why is this not up front? Is it because the media thinks it would look too badly on the U.S. government for failing to act? Or is there a deeper conspiracy where Jones was working with or for the CIA and this was all part of an operation that couldn't be allowed to fail? Well, there are, there are various aspects of it being a CIA operation, uh, Bruce, and we can go into that later.
1: I will say that, regarding the mainstream media, that's almost like Shirley Phelps' Roper sister, who's part of the Westboro Baptist Church. They picket the funerals of, you know, decedent soldiers. That's almost her sister suddenly coming up and saying, hey, you know, my sister's full of shit. Hey, this is all BS. How much credibility does she really have? Deborah Layton is the direct, direct brother of Larry Layton, the man that is the only person to date that has ever been held in the court responsible for the acts of the killing of almost a thousand people. And you know, it's it's ironic because the only reason why Larry Layton is free today is because Vernon Gosney, the man that he shot in the plane, actually testified that he knew that Larry was not responsible for what he was doing at that time.
0: Because he was in a brainwashed induced so, state, he was
1: brainwashed. I mean, you know, like, and that, that's and that's that's the fact is that you know, like, what we're talking about we're talking about people here that were brainwashed. I mean, we're not talking about people here that were we're talking about people that were eating rice and gravy three times a day for years. I mean, you know, like we talked about like not eating anything in the past podcast, but I mean, that said, we're talking about people here that we subjected to audio, you know, auditory situations. We were talking about people that were subjected to torture. We were talking about people that were subjected to food deprivation. You know, these people were not. There's no way that you can look at these people and say, "Hey, they were thinking clearly and sharply."
0: There's, there's no way. Maxwell, what do you think about this? Um, uh, uh, I no, no, I got
1: nothing.
0: Maxwell Army. <laughs> I
1: want my fucking t-shirt, Bruce. I swear to Christ. You better fucking deliver it.
0: The only politician prepared to confront Jones with allegations that he was holding many people against their will and to demand that they be allowed to leave was a courageous Californian congressman named Leo Ryan. Accompanied by a group of journalists, Ryan arrived at the commune on November 17th, and Jones feigned to welcome them. He gave them food and shelter for the night and even allowed Ryan to use his personal address system to remind the darlings they were free to determine their own future. The following evening, however, when 16 disciples opted to follow the politician rather than the preacher... Jones's rampant ego took over, and the apocalypse began. First, he sent his guards to shoot Ryan and the defectors as they boarded a plane at the airstrip. The congressman, three journalists, and one of the disciples were killed in a hail of gunfire. Shortly afterwards, back at Jonestown, the suicide order went out. The disciples were gathered around the central pavilion and ordered to drink fruit juice laced with cyanide handed out by the guards. They were still so devoted to Jones that they went willingly to their deaths, but many hundreds more refused his orders, only to be forced at gunpoint to take the poison. They included scores of old people who were apparently injected as they sat helplessly in their wheelchairs, and 276 children whose parents were instructed to press hands over their mouths so they had no choice but to swallow. Don't fear death, it is nothing. Die with a degree of dignity. Jones can be heard to exhort them on a chilling tape recording discovered hours later. This nonchalant bravado was Jones's final act of deception. Repulsed by the sight of so many bodies, their faces mixed with the ghastly rictus grin that cyanide poisoning induces. The preacher took the cowardly way out by shooting himself. For 30 years afterwards, the Guyanese government was so ashamed at having allowed him to build his state within a state that it tried to airbrush the massacre of innocents from history. Next week, though, it will finally remember the atrocity by erecting rather gaudy green signs marking the site of Jonestown for the first time. Plans to make it a dark tourism attraction complete with maps and models have also been discussed. That's kind of messed up. It is a measure of the utter isolation in Jim Jones' version of Utopia, however, that most of the dead are remembered by no one. When they were shipped home to the U.S., 546 of the bodies were never even claimed. That's really, really sad. They are buried in a mass grave in Oakland, California, which stands as a pitiful testimony to one man's supreme act of madness. Do you have any that's thoughts, Maxwell? That's,
2: that's crazy. Uh, I was... Uh... Is the town like if desperate are they desperate for money? Or
0: Well which I'm town? Serious. You mean you mean the country of Guyana? Or yeah, sorry. Well supposedly Well I mean, you know, Jones
1: Jones had tens of millions of dollars he could have spent on his followers when they, they finally took their life. So I mean he could have made they didn't have to live on rice. They could have lived on you know Kong if they wanted I, and, to.
2: Well I made that comment because like they mentioned that uh well he mentioned that uh, they're trying to or it's possible that they might make it a tourist attraction or something, and build a build models of the town or whatever.
1: So I was just curious if Jr. What are, so your, right? what are your they're, thought, they're,
0: what are your thoughts on? Well,
1: that? my 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 thoughts are many, Bruce. I mean, you know, like first, first first and foremost, I mean, like let me just say this: Guyana, to this day, they still are dealing with the idea that Jonestown existed within their country. Guyana is an exceptionally poor country, so. They still look to the idea of turning this into a monument, as a you know, out to it has become a museum. So I mean, you know, so there there still are those ideals that that might eventually take place. However, there are people that are in their government that don't want the name of Guyana associated with Jonestown. Personally, I mean, you know,
0: like this has nothing to do with the fact that I work for the government. I don't see why they would. You know, I mean, well, it's it a little different mean, the way the way that article phrased it as dark tourism. It's a little different having a historical remembrance monument museum than it is to have like kind of a tourist attraction. That's completely different.
1: <laughs> well, there, there actually is a uh, Guyana did actually erect an actual tombstone that is remembering the people of People's Temple that located on the site in granite. And that, that, that actually is already in place.
0: The other thing I wanted to address with this entire series, and one of the reasons for doing the series, is that I've seen a lot of really ignorant and downright insensitive commentary about Jonestown on the internet. By people saying, oh, well, they were joining a cult. Like, they deserve what they got. What were they thinking? They, they don't really understand that nobody really joins a cult. And Deborah Layton actually specifically says that. I'll be addressing some of her comments. They thought they were joining a church or a group with similar ideals. Well, they actually were,
1: Bruce. I mean, that, and that's the sad part. It's not, you know, to anyone that says, hey, they were joining a cult, so they deserve what they got— These people, there were very uneducated people that joined this movement. There were. There were people that didn't know how to read. There were people that didn't know how to write. And Jones took advantage of that. But that said, there were also very, very high-level educated people that were not part of the, the clique. And when I say clique, I mean, I'm talking about, like, you know, the actual inner circle that planned the deaths here. Yeah. Anyone could join a cult. You know, if, if you think that, you know, you're above joining a cult, you're really stupid. I mean, you know, and, and especially, you know, anyone that's ever gone to college, if you look at the college mechanism, if you look at the job workforce mechanism, you've been a part of a mechanism in your life. So if you if you think that you're above
0: joining a cult, you're really, you're you're cult material. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's a that's a very good point. I mean, there's cult like aspects to modern society that nobody really thinks about. These people thought that they were affecting change in society. I mean, you know, and, and, and you know,
1: Jones was sick and, and brain you know, brainwashing them, but you have to understand that we know that now that it's all been exposed. We didn't, they didn't know that then when they were a part of it.
0: Yeah, very, very good point. So, once again, just this is nobody, yeah, brainwashing and propaganda and all of these things. You can't really fault the victims directly in this case because they didn't know what they were getting into. Just like the average person who joins a particular church or movement, they don't necessarily know what they're getting into. And some people were just fortunate enough to be getting into things that didn't get them killed. And other people were unfortunate in that they kind of fell under the whims of madmen. So I'm going to read one more short article real quick before we get into some of the aspects of Jonestown life, whether it was a commune or a camp. Although if you've made it this far, you can kind of see where all this is going. And it's not... A Place of Rays and Sunshine. (laughs) First Person 30 Years After the Jonestown Massacre by Tim Reiterman, Associate Press Writer, November 17, 2008. Dark clouds tumbled overhead on that afternoon 30 years ago in the last hours of the congressman's mission, deep in the jungle of Guyana. With a small entourage, Representative Leo Ryan had come to investigate the remote agricultural settlement built by a California-based church. But while he was there, more than a dozen people had stepped forward. We want to return to the United States, they said fearfully. Suddenly, a powerful wind tore through the central pavilion, rifling pages of my notebook and the skies Dumped torrents that bowed plantain fronds. People scrambled for cover as I interviewed the founder of People's Temple. I feel sorry that we are being destroyed from within, intoned the Reverend Jim Jones, stunned that members of his flock wanted to abandon the place he called the promised land. That freakish storm and the mood seemed ominous, and not just to me. I felt evil itself blow into Jonestown when that storm hit, recalls Tim Carter, one of the few settlers to survive that day. Within hours, Carter would see his wife and son die of cyanide poisoning too of the more than 900 people Jones led in a murder and suicide ritual of epic proportions. And I would be wounded when a team of Temple assassins unleashed a fusillade that killed Ryan, the first congressman slain in the line of duty, and four others, including three newsmen, By their wiles or happenstance, scores of Temple members escaped the events of November 18, 1978. Among the survivors, members of the group's basketball team who were playing in Georgetown, 150 miles away. A woman who escaped Jonestown with her young son hours before the carnage. A family that had left People's Temple months before. Some of the survivors would commit suicide die at the hands of others, or fall victim to drugs. But many more moved on to new careers, spouses, and even churches. With the passage of time, differences between temple outsiders and insiders, temple defectors and loyalists, have faded. They share painful memories, guilt-filled feelings, loss of loved ones, and psychological scars from an event that have come to symbolize the ultimate power of a charismatic leader over his followers. Tim Carter was spared to carry out one last mission for the temple. Almost 30 years after that horrible day, we spoke for the first time about one of the worst American tragedies of the last century. We are inextricably linked, Carter said. What you experienced at the airstrip is what I experienced at Jonestown. Somebody was trying to kill us, and my family was killed as well. I cannot describe the agony, terror, and horror of what that was. Yolanda Williams was about 12 when she began attending temple services in San Francisco with her parents. Her father, lured by Jones's reputation as a Christian prophet with healing powers, believed that the minister helped him recover from an attack. You want to talk about that, JR? Was he, how, how much was he pushing his, himself as a prophet with healing powers? How much of that was part of his shtick?
1: Joe jo, jo, Jones Jones had many healing sessions, and um, it's come out in, in recent years that a lot of them were faked. I mean, obviously, all of them were faked, but, I mean, Jones Jones was what you wanted him to be. I mean, you know, I, there's a, a very, Jones even said this, if you see me as your, your father, I'll be your father. If you see me as your prophet, I'll be your prophet. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God. And, you know, that was the effect that Jones had on a lot of people. You know, Hugh Forreston Jr. said that. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's the effect that he had on people. Did all the people believe in healings? No. But there's actually tapes, especially from um, Larry, who was the final doctor that administered the cyanide. He actually went through, quote-unquote, dad's miracles. And you know, he, there's actually a tape involved where he runs through all of the healings that Jones did. You know, and just to understand these people, that was playing 24 hours a day in Jonestown. They had audio tapes playing 24 hours a day in Jonestown of Jones's messages of socialism and of his abilities and the rules. And if you listen to them, there's news followed by his abilities, followed by the rules of Jonestown. And it's sequential. I mean, and it, it's very hypnotic. I mean, you know, like, I don't know if, if our viewers should listen to that, but if you listen to more than, like, you know, two to three hours of it, I mean, even to somebody that's very ready for it, you know, I was I was paid to, you know, listen
0: to it. It's, it's very hypnotic. Maxwell, what do you think about that? Is that bizarre or what?
2: Um, sorry, I, I missed the last part. It's uh,
0: <laughs> Explain that. Explain what you said the last. Part. Jones had Jones supposedly was a healer as well. He kind of marketed himself as a Christian prophet with healing powers. Okay. And so, supposedly, some people believed that he helped them recover from a heart attack or some kind of ailments, and then no, George, I mean it's it's it,
1: it's beyond that, Bruce. I mean he helped. He helped people. He cured cancer. He helped people walk again. He helped people that were blind that could see. He he was not just your run-of-the-mill healer. Oh, I mean, so, you so know, he, had, he so he, he had he ran had the whole gamut.
2: Play along with
1: him. Yeah,
2: people play along with him. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean it's not awesome, but it's just like it was a good strategy. But uh, I was wondering uh, how many people got out of the cult, or if they're if Eddie.
0: Well, I clearly mentioned there were there were a number of survivors and even people who defected months earlier. There were eighty four oh, okay. people that survived in Georgetown.
1: Oh, okay. But okay, that and day, how,
2: how many defected though? Like how many defected throughout? There were there
1: were there was uh, you know there was at least a hundred that defected. I mean, you, you, it, the exact numbers we can go over in a, a specific podcast. I don't have the specific numbers regarding the Jonestown incident. The people that made it to Jonestown and left, I'm not sure of. The people that defected before the cult moved to Jonestown, there were at least a hundred. And before, you know, and the day of, there were at least 85 that survived. Because they were on various missions regarding, them, but I mean, you have them, to understand, a thousand people died.
0: Some of them, weren't there stories of some of them playing dead well, among the bodies? Were, there were.
1: Yeah. You have to understand that, like, you know, the, the actual doctors went around with stethoscopes and injected in throats of people that they, they were skeptical of.
0: Wow, that's insane. I never heard that. That's that's completely yeah. insane. Yeah. Well, that's one of the darkest things I've ever heard. Yeah. Maxwell, any thoughts on that? Um, no, I'm good. Okay, so the People's Temple sprang from the heartland in the 1950s. Jones built an interracial congregation in Indianapolis through passionate Pentecostal preaching and courageous calls for racial equality. Moving his flock to California, the minister transformed his church into a leftist social movement with programs for the poor. Political work by his followers elevated Jones to prominence in liberal democratic circles by the late 1970s. He was head of San Francisco's Public Housing Commission when media scrutiny and legal problems spurred his retreat to Jonestown for what would be his last stand. In 1977, as news media were beginning to investigate disciplinary thrashings and other abuse in the temple, Jones summoned Williams and her husband to Guyana. Upon arrival in Jonestown, the couple felt deceived. It was far from the paradise Jones described. People were packed into metal-roofed cabins, sleeping on bunks without mattresses, and using outhouses with newsprint for toilet paper. There were armed guards and Jones warned that deserters would encounter venomous snakes and hostile natives. The preacher, who once charmed U.S. politicians and met with the future First Lady, Rosalind Carter, had turned into a pill-popping dictator who sadistically presided over harsh discipline. I felt like I was in a concentration camp and he was Hitler, Williams said. Because her husband was an attorney whose skills could be better used elsewhere, they were permitted to leave after a few weeks, and months before the horrific end, Williams and her family cut ties with the temple. Eventually, Williams joined the San Francisco Police Department, but she told no one about her temple involvement for a decade because she feared the loss of her job. When she finally confided to a deputy chief, he said, no way, because everybody had this stereotype about the kinds of people who are members of people's temple, she recalled. In fact, these were mostly ordinary people who joined the temple because they wanted to help their fellow man and be part of something larger than themselves. Once again, if you're going to chastise people for wanting to do that, I mean, that's, that's kind of messed up. That's well, messed up. You,
1: you also have to understand, Bruce, that a lot of these people, I mean, like, there was, you know, I mean, and it's, it's on audio tape. Again, your your viewers can listen. I can get the physical audio tape number for you. But, you know, there was a, a child that was abducted. He, he tried to leave three times in one day and was abducted by the security force and remained in stay. We don't know what happened to him. There was an, a, a girl that was 15 years old that was so depressed and tried to escape, but was denied that she drank physical gasoline and then was revived and then was injected with Thorazine after she fucking survived that incident, you know, to keep her complacent. So, I mean, and and we're not talking about the Dianese individuals that were just, they happened to be locals that just, you know, wandered into the People's Temple because they wanted food or whatever. And they were abducted and, you know, shot with thorazine Wait. to educate them as socialists. Oh, that that girl died, right? The one that, that gasoline? No, she was revived. And then yeah. after that they shot her with thorazine to keep her complacent. Uh, how much gasoline did she drink? I don't know how much, but she was revived because Jones supposedly had a faith healing with her where he brought her back to life, quote unquote. And then yeah. after that she she needed to be re-educated as a socialist.
2: Because uh, so she
1: was that, kept in their specialized, uh, you know, special victims unit in, in, in Jonestown Medical Center where she was pumped with Thorazine. Uh, that's cool. I wouldn't call it cool, but I mean, you know, like, if you, you drink gasoline, I mean, you know, like, that's that's pretty fucked up. I mean, you know, like I, if you ask me, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not like you know an expert on like you know human beings and stuff, but like well, this I... woman, this 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 fourteen year old girl wanted to die so much because she was that upset with her living environment. She drank physical gasoline. Well, that's,
0: yeah, that's that's yeah. that's dark. That's dark. Williams thrived as. But a... that's that's one of a thousand people, Bruce. <laughs> that's one of a thousand people
1: and then we 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 watch every year when they have the documentaries on Jonestown and then we could sound like oh like, they came up and they drank the kool-aid it wasn't like that these these people were tortured they they weren't these people these people went through so I mean even the people that lived they they they, they were fucking tortured I mean you know like I, I couldn't believe what they said to me today if they, they said it to me and said, oh, well, you know, Jim had the right decision. Yeah, right, because, you know, you were tortured fucking, what, like, you know, four years, five years, ten years, 20 years? And imagine that, Bruce. I, don't I mean, wanna, I, and keep, I don't keep, keep in mind, like, you know, these people had families. I mean, we're talking about, like, you know, people, the, the one you mentioned in the article, she lost twenty seven people in her family that day. Twenty seven people. I mean, you know, like what? I mean, what the fuck? I mean, you know, like how, how can you rationalize? Yeah, I mean, like we're. I'm upset because, like, you know, my mother has a condition. I take her to the hospital. Twenty seven people, and we're supposed to say, "Hey, you know, like the Kool Aid," you know. When the the Jonestown residents say, say, you know, drinking Kool-Aid is a a disrespectful thing for them, I believe it. Because they didn't lose their family that day. They didn't lose their life that day. They lost everything that day. Twenty-seven people that you lost in your life in one, I mean, in four hours? How are you supposed to contemplate that?
0: It's impossible. How do you compute that? It's impossible to contemplate that for someone who hasn't been through it. It's, uh, but they did. Yeah, well, it's, well, yeah. Which shows the strength of the survivors. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's as dark as it gets. Yeah, I mean,
1: we're not, ta- we're not talking about Bigfoot here, Bruce. We're not talking about Thanksgiving Day, you know, conspiracy. We're, this is real deal. Mind check.
2: Maxwell, you're breathing kind of heavy there. And- oh, sorry. And- I was just thinking about my uh, my incident with the gasoline when I was, like, five. <laughs> you like
0: drinking gasoline?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, like, well, it was just interesting because I
0: still have memories of it. Um, it yeah, because I like that. You've, you've, was- you've, you've drank gasoline before? Williams thrived as a policewoman. The department needed officers to connect with gang members and other juveniles in trouble with the law. I told my story to young people, said Williams. They were amazed because they never imagined anyone could beat these type of odds. On the morning of November 18th, Ryan's party was about to tour the settlement and investigate whether its inhabitants were truly free to go. Leslie Wilson, wife of Security Chief Joe Wilson, took her three-year-old son, Jakari, to the kitchen building, where they met seven others who had endured enough of Jonestown's Spartan life and Jones's faked sieges and suicide rehearsals the group told fellow settlers they were going on a picnic but they just kept on moving through the jungle with Jakari slung in a sheet on wilson's back i was so scared i was shaking in my tennis shoes she recalled i was waiting for a gunshot and a bullet and me dropping concealed by thick undergrowth the escapees passed so close to the jonestown guard shack that they could hear voices trudging 35 miles along railroad tracks they arrived sweaty and dirty that night in the town of matthews ridge these towns have kind of american names for guyana don't they keep in mind bruce
1: that, like she was actually she was married to joe wilson the yeah. people that left that the people that left that day like you know like i'm not sure if it was her there were people that were married to joe wilson that like left that day and keep in mind like Joe Wilson was the chief of security, quote-unquote, but Jones' son, Tim Jones, was the actual
0: architect of security, and he perished. Yeah, we'll have to cover him in a dedicated episode. Wilson, who lost her mother, brother, sister, and husband... That Saturday would be consumed with survivor's guilt. On Mother's Day, two years after Jonestown, she thought about what it must have been like for her mother to see two of her children die. She put a pistol to her head. She did not shoot. She had to live, she decided, for the sake of her son. After a bout with drug abuse, she twice married and bore two more children. Now divorced, she goes by her married name, Leslie Kathy, and works in the healthcare industry. She finally has found forgiveness, even for Jones, but she cannot forget. I pray my family did not think I left them, she said. Not a day goes by that I don't think about it. I mean, these kind of stories are so, so horrible it's like you said, I mean, it's very tough to contemplate because without being in that situation, you can't really, I mean, it's, it's pretty much impossible to, to imagine what it must've been like. Just really, really terrible. And keep in mind, there were 900 people.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you know, like there were whole families that were just euthanized for, for a purpose. I mean, like they, Jones called it revolutionary suicide and crossing over into another plane. For what? Well, what was the purpose? Because four or five people got shot and he was legally liable. That was the reason why 900 people needed to die.
0: Yeah, it's it's messed up any way you look at it. While a temple dump truck ferried the Ryan party and 15 grim-faced defectors toward the Port Kaituma airstrip about six miles away, we were unaware that anyone had escaped. But at Jonestown's front gate, Joe Wilson inspected the crowded truck bed looking for his wife and toddler. We made it safely to the dirt strip, but then a tractor with a trailer full of Temple gunmen, Wilson among them, soon bore down on us. Gunfire exploded as we boarded two small planes. Ryan died. So did defector Patricia Parks, NBC Newsman. Don Harris and Bob Brown, and photographer Greg Robinson, my colleague at the San Francisco Examiner. I was shot in the left forearm and wrist. That night, those of us who were ambulatory took turns tending to the most severely wounded in a tent by the airstrip. The NBC soundman a temple defector who someday would become a policeman, a concerned relative whose sister was a Jones mistress, and Ryan aide Jackie Spear, who would go on to a long career as a California lawmaker before being elected to the U.S. Congress this year. Some survivors had fled into the jungle, but most took refuge in a cramped rum shop, fearful the assassins would return. You're going to see the worst carnage of your life at Jonestown, predicted one of the defectors the next morning. It's called revolutionary suicide. By the time the airstrip gunmen, among them Joe Wilson, returned to Jonestown, Jones had gathered his people in the pavilion and weaving words of desperation had begun preparing them for the end. Then he used news of Ryan's shooting to convince the throng that they had no hope, no future, no place to go to. The congressman has been murdered, he announced. Please get the medication before it's too late. Don't be afraid to die. When potassium cyanide-laced grape flavor aid was brought forward, Jones wanted the children to go first, sealing everyone's fate because the parents and elders would have no reason to live. With armed guards encircling everyone, and with the youngsters bawling and screaming, medical staff members with syringes squirted poison down the throats of babies. The killing already was underway when Carter was sent to the pavilion, Frozen in horror, he saw his own 15-month son, Malcolm, poisoned. Then his wife, Gloria, died in his arms. I wanted to kill myself, he said, but I had a voice saying, you cannot die, you must live. He did live. Jones had one last mission for the Vietnam veteran. A top Jones aide gave Carter, his brother, and another Temple member pistols and luggage containing Hundreds of thousands of dollars. They were instructed to take the money to the Soviet embassy in Georgetown along with letters authorizing transfer of millions from temple bank accounts to that government. It was to be Jones's last gesture for socialism. But the trio ditched most of the cash during the arduous hike to Port Kaituma and they were detained by the police there. Two days later, Carter was brought back to Jonestown to help identify the bodies. People still think everyone lined up in orderly fashion and drank the potion without protest, Carter said. It's not reality. I saw people who had been injected with poison." In the aftermath, he went to live with his father in Boise, Idaho. Walking on the street, he felt that others looked at him with loathing and fear. Friends from his youth on the San Francisco Peninsula, where he had introduced some people to the temple, called him a murderer or refused to speak with him. Though he listed people's temple on his resume... Carter landed a job at a travel agency and worked in the industry for many years. He has had two long-term relationships and is the father of three children. He collects disability payments for post-traumatic stress from Vietnam, but he reflects on the nightmare of Jonestown each day. The more time that goes on, the better it is, he said. I can think about Gloria and Malcolm without feeling that knife in my chest. Late on the afternoon of November 18th, a coded radio message from Jones was transmitted to the temple's house in Georgetown. Some Jonestown residents had betrayed them, and he wanted the faithful to kill temple enemies. Then members in the Guyanese capital and San Francisco, a couple of hundred people, should commit suicide. Bay Area businessmen, Sherwin Harris had sat down for his supper at the house with his teenage daughter, Leanne, and his ex-wife, Sharon Amos's two other children. Oblivious to Jones's dire orders, Harris felt hopeful and upbeat. He had traveled to Guyana with the Ryan party to check on his daughter's welfare, and after several days of trying, was finally able to see her in person. Harris and his daughter discussed plans to spend the next day together, touring Georgetown. Later, Harris took a cab back to his hotel, his spirits lifted by the visit. The hotel. His spirits lifted by the visit, but that night police informed him that his daughter, Amos, and her two other children were dead. It felt like the swing of a sledgehammer full on my chest, he said. How could this be? I just left her. Amos killed her two youngest children with a butcher knife. Then she and Leanne died the same way. Harris clings to the belief that his daughter was killed and did not commit suicide. Since that night, Harris's two surviving children have made him a grandfather four times over. He has become friends with his daughter's closest temple confidant. As I've met members over the years, I would hate to bet a cup of coffee on the differences between them and us, he said. They were normal folks, mostly wanting to make a contribution to society. Other people think it never would happen to them. It could happen to anyone caught up in those circumstances. One enduring mystery is who put a bullet in Jones's head. Evidence suggests that he shot himself at the pavilion or was killed by a close aide as he had planned. Two of his aides, sisters Annie Moore and Caroline Layton, were among 13 people whose bodies were found in Jones's cottage. But Moore was the only one who was shot and may well have been the last person to die in the settlement. Her suicide note praised Jonestown and Jones. His love for humans was insurmountable, she wrote, and it was many whom he put his love and trust in, and they left him and spit in his face. Her epitaph read, we died because you would not let us live. Rebecca Moore, who lost her two sisters and nephew that day, is chairwoman of the Religious Studies Department at San Diego State University, and when she teaches about new religions and death and dying, she talks about her personal connection to the tragedy. She and her husband launched a website dedicated to conveying the humanity of temple members she feels were dehumanized by photos of their bodies and dismissed as robotic cultists. Moore thinks her sisters, socially conscious daughters of a minister, were true temple believers to the end. Still, she cannot fathom how they could have joined in planning murders and suicides. Jones did not buy the poison and mix it, she said. Others tested it on pigs. Others, including my sisters, wrote letters about how to kill people, which is baffling. What is baffling is why people would participate in something so inhumane. Do you want to talk about the pig testing? Because a lot of people don't know about that.
1: Pig testing?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, well, they actually tested the cyanide on a pig beforehand, several months before the actual euthanization. So Jones was aware that the, the Jonestown agricultural project would not continue. So this was in the works. This was not something that was done at the last second. This was something that was
0: planned yeah that makes it that i mean as dark as it is that makes it even darker because i mean just when you think it couldn't get any worse because it's bad enough if it's with some kind of last ditch scramble panic but all of it being premeditated i mean that's yeah that, that yeah it was definitely was dark definitely dark premeditated and, yeah yeah The unidentifiable or unclaimed bodies of more than 400 of Jonestown's dead, most of them children, are interred in a mass grave at an Oakland cemetery overlooking San Francisco Bay. Each year, a memorial service is conducted on November 18th. Dozens of surviving members also come together for private reunions 30 years later because they still value their friendship, the temple's sense of community, and their utopian dream. Of a world free from racism and injustice. I go because I feel so strongly about the need for and power of forgiveness and understanding, said Stephen Jones, the minister's son. He was 19 and in Georgetown with other basketball team members on the temple's last day. I've come to believe a group of people can see the same thing and each come away with a completely different perspective and all be right in the moment. Today, he is the father of three daughters and is the vice president of a small Bay Area office installation and services company. In Jonestown's aftermath, Stephen hated his father, but he has come to recognize that the capacity for good and evil and mental sickness coexisted in Jones. We don't want to face our own responsibility or part in what happened and feel ashamed for being duped or manipulated, he said. We look for someone else to blame. I realized over time that there was a great need to forgive him, then I could forgive myself. So he had more than one son?
1: Well, yes, he did. He, he had one biological son, Bruce, and then he had multiple sons that he adopted. They had various leadership positions. I will say that there's a lot of scrutiny over the memorial because the fact that Jones is actually listed on the memorial has pissed off a lot of survivor families because they feel that he was the catalyst of the actual murder. And Carolyn Layton is listed on the memorial. The the actual Jonestown Memorial, the official one, lists a lot of people that were responsible or orchestrated the actual, quote-unquote, suicide. And that has really upset a lot of defectors and family members of people that... They don't feel that they should be recognized. They feel that it should be lost history.
0: If Jones himself was a victim of MK Ultra and brainwashing, not not to excuse anything, but if these people were all brainwashed, like every single last one of them, it's kind of rough. It depends on how you look at it. Where they, you know... I mean, you know, and,
1: and, and, and he's on the memorial, but there are people that, you know, feel that... I think Steven feels probably that You know, I'm I'm sure he questions, I'm sure he's been asked, I'm sure that he's been interrogated regarding as to why his father, of being the only biological son of a man responsible for the death of almost a thousand people,
0: is on that memorial. That's got to be a lot to live with. Yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, that's, yeah, it's very rough to think about that. So let's go over the actual affidavit of Deborah Layton Blakely. So this is the threat and possibility of mass suicide by members of the People's Temple. So this was written on June 15, 1978, and it is the affidavit of Deborah Leighton Blakely. It was written four weeks after her escape from Jonestown and was front page news across the country. Six months later and just four days before the tragedy, Deborah was giving her testimony the four state department officials requesting help for the 900 held against their will in Jim Jones's encampment in Guyana I Deborah Layton Blakely declare the following under penalty of perjury 1 the purpose of this affidavit is to call to the attention of the US government the existence of a situation which threatens the lives of United States citizens living in Jonestown Guyana 2 from August 1971 until May 13, 1978, I was a member of the People's Temple. For a substantial period of time to my departure for Guyana in, in December 1977, I held the position of financial secretary of the People's Temple. I was 18 years old when I joined the People's Temple. I had grown up in affluent circumstances in the permissive atmosphere of Berkeley, California. By joining the People's Temple, I hoped to help others and in the process to bring structure and self-discipline to my own life. Four, during the years I was a member of the People's Temple, I watched the organization depart with increasing frequency from its professed dedication for social change and participatory democracy. The Reverend Jim Jones gradually assumed a tyrannical hold over the lives of Temple members. Five, any disagreement with his dictates came to be regarded as treason. The Reverend Jones labeled any person who left the organization a traitor and, quote, Fair game end quote. He steadfastly and convincingly maintained that the punishment for defection was death. The fact that severe corporal punishment was frequently administered to temple members gave the threats a frightening air of reality. Six, the Reverend Jones saw himself as the center of a conspiracy. The identity of the conspirators changed from day to day along with his erratic world vision. He induced the fear in others that through their contact with him, they had become targets of the conspiracy. He convinced black temple members that if they did not follow him to Guyana, they would be put into concentration camps and killed. White members were instilled with the belief that their names appeared on a secret list of enemies of the state that was kept by the CIA and that they would be tracked down, tortured, imprisoned, and subsequently killed if they did not flee to Guyana. Seven, frequently at temple meetings, Reverend Jones would talk nonstop for hours. At various times, he claimed that he was the reincarnation of either Lenin, Jesus Christ, or one of a variety of other religious or political figures. He claimed that he had divine powers and could heal the sick. He stated that he had extrasensory perception and could tell what everyone was thinking. He said that he had powerful connections the world over, including the mafia, Idi Amin, and the Soviet government. Eight, when I first joined the temple, Jones seemed to make clear distinctions between fantasy and reality. I believe that most of the time when he said irrational things, he was aware that they were irrational, but they served as a tool of his leadership. His theory was that the end justified the means. At other times, he appeared to be deluded by a paranoid vision of the world. He would not sleep for days at a time and talk compulsively about the conspiracies against him. However, as time went on, he appeared to become genuinely irrational. 9. Reverend Jones insisted that Temple members work long hours and completely give up all semblance of a personal life. Proof of loyalty to Jones was confirmed by actions showing that a member had given up everything. Even basic necessities. The most loyal were in the worst physical condition. Dark circles under one's eyes or extreme loss of weight were considered signs of loyalty. 10. The primary emotions I came to experience were exhaustion and fear. I knew that Reverend Jones was in some sense sick, but that did not make me any less afraid of him. 11. Reverend Jones fled the United States in June 1977 amidst growing public criticism of the practices of the temple. He informed members of the temple that he would be imprisoned for life if he did not leave immediately. 12. Between June 1977 and December 1977, when I was ordered to depart for Guyana, I had access to coded radio broadcasts from Reverend Jones in Guyana to the People's Temple's headquarters in San Francisco. 13. In September 1977, an event which Reverend Jones viewed as a major crisis occurred. Through listening to coded radio broadcasts and conversations with other members of the temple staff, I learned that an attorney for a former temple member, Grace Stowen, had arrived in Guyana seeking the return of her son, John Victor Stowen. 14. Reverend Jones had expressed particular bitterness towards Grace Stone. She had been chief counselor, a position of great responsibility within the temple. Her personal qualities of generosity and compassion made her very popular with the membership. Her departure posed a threat to Reverend Jones' absolute control. Reverend Jones delivered a number of public tirades against her. He said that her kindness was faked and that she was a CIA agent. He swore that he would never return her son to her. Fifteen, I am informed that Reverend Jones believed that he would be able to stop Timothy Stoen, husband of Grace Stowen, and father of John Victor Stoen, from speaking against the temple as long as the child was being held in Guyana. Timothy Stoen, a former assistant district attorney in Mendocino and, and San Francisco counties, had been one of Reverend Jones' most trusted advisors. It was rumored that Stone was critical of the use of physical force and other forms of intimidation against Temple members. I am further informed that Reverend Jones believed that a public statement by Timothy Stone would increase the tarnish on his public image. 16. When the Temple lost track of Timothy Stone, I was assigned to track him down and offer him a large sum of money in return for his silence. Initially, I was to offer him $5,000. I was authorized to pay him up to $10,000. I was not able to locate him and did not see him again until on or about October 6, 1977. On that date, the temple received information that he would be joining Grace in a San Francisco Superior Court action to determine the custody of John. I was one of a group of temple members assigned to meet him outside the court and attempt to intimidate him to prevent him from going inside. 17. The September 1977 crisis concerning John Stone reached major proportions. The radio messages from Guyana were frenzied and hysterical. One morning, Terry J. Buford, public relations advisor to Reverend Jones, and myself were instructed to place a telephone call to a high-ranking Guyanese official who was visiting the United States and deliver the following threat unless the government of Guyana took immediate steps to stall the Guyanese court action regarding John Stowan's custody, the entire population of Jonestown would extinguish itself in a mass suicide by 5.30 p.m. that day. I was later informed that temple members in Guyana placed similar calls to other Guyanese officials. Now, how major of a red flag is that? Pretty big. Maxwell, what do you think? The threatening suicide the year before. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maxwell Army. It, I mean, it, it, it's
1: showing Bruce that like this was not something that was last minute. This this was this was used as a tool. To get what Jones wanted. I mean, whether or not it was CIA, whether or not it was involved with other parties, killing these people was part of a larger plan that was already in place.
0: Yeah, I think that's becoming more evident by looking over all of this evidence. 18, we received later radio communication to the effect that the court case had been stalled and then the suicide threat was called off. 19, I arrived in Guyana In December 1977, I spent a week in Georgetown and then, pursuant to orders, traveled to Jonestown. 20. Conditions at Jonestown were even worse than I had feared they would be. The settlement was swarming with armed guards. No one was permitted to leave unless on special assignment, and these assignments were given only to the most trusted. We were allowed to associate with Guyanese people only while on a mission. 21 the vast majority of the temple members were required to work in the fields from 7 a.m to 6 p.m six days per week and on sunday from 7 a.m to 2 p.m we were allowed one hour for lunch most of this hour was spent walking back to lunch and standing in line for our food taking any other breaks during the workday was severely frowned upon so this really does seem like some kind of a a work camp, oh, yeah. a labor camp. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, 22, the food was woefully inadequate. There was rice for breakfast, rice water soup for lunch, and rice and beans for dinner. On Sunday, we each received an egg and a cookie. Two or three times a week, we had vegetables. Some very weak and elderly members received one egg per day. However, the food did improve markedly on the few occasion when there were outside visitors. 23. In contrast, Reverend Jones, claiming problems with his blood sugar, dined separately and ate meat regularly. He had his own refrigerator, which was stocked with food. The two women with whom he resided, Maria Katsaris and Caroline Layton, and the two small boys who lived with him, Kimo Prokes and John Stowen, dined with the membership. However, they were in much better physical shape than everyone else, since they were also allowed to eat the food in Reverend Jones's refrigerator.
1: Keep in mind, uh, keep keep in mind, Bruce, Uh, Jones was allowed meat. He also had soda. He had exceptional uh, food beyond the scope of the commune itself.
0: 24, in February 1978, conditions had become so bad that half of Jonestown was ill with severe diarrhea and high fevers. I was seriously ill for two weeks. Like most of the other sick people, I was not given any nourishing foods to help recover. I was given water and a tea drink until I was well enough to return to the basic rice and beans diet. 25. As the former financial secretary, I was aware that the temple received over $65,000 in social security checks per month. It made me angry to see that only a fraction of the income of the senior citizens in the care of the temple was being used for their benefit. Some of the money was being used to build a settlement that would earn Reverend Jones the place in history with which he was so obsessed. The balance was being held in reserve. Although I felt terrible about what was happening, I was afraid to say anything because I knew that anyone with a deferring opinion gained the wrath of Jones and other members. 26, Reverend Jones's thoughts were made known to the population of Jonestown by means of broadcasts over the loudspeaker system. He broadcasts an average of over six hours per day. When the Reverend was particularly agitated, he would broadcast for hours on end. He would talk on and on while we worked in the fields or tried to sleep. In addition to the daily broadcasts, there were marathon meetings six nights per week. So you got to toil in the fields all day and then you're up all night in meetings, and then you're listening to broadcasts and the rest of the... I mean, that's rough, man. That's pretty pretty insane. I don't think most people understand the conditions that were in Jonestown.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's why, like, you know, like, they're insulted by drinking the Kool-Aid. Because, I mean, like, it, it, it it wasn't like that. Like, these people were tortured as animals before they were fucking killed. They were not... This was not something where it was just like, hey, you know, like, let's watch movies end to end, and then, like, hey, you need to die. It was, let's fucking see where we can push the barometer. And then, at the end of the line, you know, they wanted to die, Bruce. They wanted they They wanted it. They wanted it. I mean, you know, look, we're not talking about conspiracy. We're not talking about, you know, like, these people were actually tortured. I mean... If you were to lay Jonestown next to Auschwitz, and you were to go through the facts, Auschwitz has more deaths per case, obviously, and we're not we're not discrediting that, and we're not we're not trying to disrespect the people that died at Auschwitz. But when you look at the torture, the psychological torture that occurred, Jonestown, I, I mean, find me a place that's darker than that. I mean, because these people were fucking mishandled from, from day one. I mean, you know, like they were truly tortured.
0: Yeah. 27. The tenor of the broadcast revealed that Reverend Jones's paranoia had reached an all-time high. He was irate at the light in which he had been portrayed by the media. He felt that as a consequence of having been ridiculed and maligned, he would be denied a place in history. His obsession with his place in history was maniacal. When pondering the loss of what he considered his rightful place in history, he would grow despondent and say that all was lost. 28. Visitors were infrequently permitted Access to Jonestown. The entire community was required to put on a performance when a visitor arrived. This sounds like North Korea, doesn't it? Before- well, I mean,
1: it, it sounded, it, it's worse than North Korea, you know, Bruce. We have vid- We have we have actually auto- t- audio tapes, and like we'll, we'll go over that. Like you know, like Jones actually, you know, it was a pass or fail whether or not they were going to tell the reporters the right things. And um, I mean, you know, in some cases, like they had to be reeducated. These and you know that they were taken to, like, you know, an off-site area where they were, quote-unquote, re-educated. But there's actual physical evidence. I mean, I hate to say it, but they were like the Nazis in that they kept meticulous records. They actually, we actually have audio tapes of Jones programming the people of what to say. They're saying, hey, you know, I have fish, I have lamb, I have all kinds of stuff to eat for dinner, and we know that at the end of the day, the people that were saying that they ate rice and gravy with meat mixed in, and, you know, the meat, it was cat, based on the fact that, like, you know, like, Jones had a very strict order to bring cats into Jonestown for purposes
0: before the visitor arrived Reverend Jones would instruct us on the image we were to project the workday would be shortened the food would be better sometimes there would be music and dancing aside from these performances there was little joy or hope in any of our lives an air of despondency prevailed you know Bruce I mean like you know like it was it was worse than it was worse than
1: socialism I mean you know like these people were fucking brainwashed, but they weren't just brainwashed. They were actually tortured. They were they were put through something that even the people living in Russia, where you have to stand in line for toilet paper, they weren't put through that. They were put through more than that.
0: 29, there was constant talk of death. In the early days of the People's Temple, general rhetoric about dying for principles was sometimes heard. In Jonestown, the concept of mass suicide for socialism arose. Because our lives were so wretched anyway, and because we were so afraid to contradict Reverend Jones, the concept was not challenged. 30, an event which transpired shortly after I reached Jonestown convinced me that Reverend Jones had sufficient control over the minds of the residents that it would be possible for him to effect a mass suicide. At least once a week, Reverend Jones would declare a white night or state of emergency. The entire population of Jonestown would be awakened by blaring sirens. Designated persons, approximately 50 in number, would arm themselves with rifles, move from cabin to cabin, and make certain that all members were responding. A mass meeting would ensue. Frequently, during these crises, we would be told that the jungle was swarming with mercenaries and that death could be expected at any minute. 32. During one white night, we were informed that our situation had become hopeless and that the only course of action open to us was a mass suicide for the glory of socialism. We were told that we would be tortured by mercenaries if we were taken alive. Everyone, including the children, was told to line up. As we passed through the line, we were given a small glass of red liquid to drink. We were told that the liquid contained poison and that we would die within 45 minutes. We all did, just as we were told. When the time came and we should have dropped dead, Reverend Jones explained that the poison was not real and that we had just been through a loyalty test. He warned us that the time was not far off when it would become necessary for us to die by our own hands. Okay, now if that's not a damning point in the affidavit, I don't know what is, because they were specifically trained for mass suicide. It's not that they were just
1: trained, Bruce. I mean, like, you know, there's there's not just evidence regarding the actual cyanide poisoning from the doctor from nurses, there's people that, there's actually a very long list that I don't know if you're privy to, but I'll send you the link, like, where they talk about how they want to die, and not only how they want to die, how they want to take the ones that don't believe with them. And, I mean, we're talking about, like, you know, like they wish that they had machine guns,
0: 33. Life at Jonestown was so miserable and the physical pain of exhaustion was so great that this event was not traumatic for me. I had become indifferent as to whether I lived or died. 34. During another white night, I watched Caroline Layton, my former sister-in-law, give sleeping pills to two young children in her care, John Victor Stowen, and Kimo Croakes, her own son. Caroline said to me that Reverend Jones had told her that everyone was going to have to die that night. She said that she would probably have to shoot John and chemo and that it would be easier for them if she did it while they were asleep.
1: Which she did on the final at night, by the way. 35. In April
0: 1978, I was reassigned to Georgetown. I became determined to escape or die trying. I surreptitiously contacted my sister who wired me a plane ticket. After I received the ticket, I sought the assistance of the United States Embassy in arranging to leave Guyana. Reverend Jones had instructed us that he had a spy working in the embassy and that he would know if anyone went to the embassy for help. For this reason... I was very fearful. 36. I am most grateful to the United States government and Richard McCoy and Daniel Weber, in particular, for the assistance they gave me. However, the efforts made to investigate conditions in Jonestown are inadequate for the following reasons. The infrequent visits are always announced and arranged. Acting in fear for their lives, Temple members respond as they are told. The members appear to speak freely to American representatives, but in fact, they are drilled thoroughly prior to each visit on what questions to expect and how to respond. Members are afraid of retaliation if they speak their true feelings in public. 37. On behalf of the population of Jonestown, I urge the United States government to take adequate steps to safeguard their rights. I believe that their lives are in danger. I declare under penalty of perjury that the foregoing is true and correct, except as to those matters stated on information and belief, and as to those I believe them to be true. Executed this 15 day of June, 1978, at San Francisco, California. Signed, Deborah Layton Blakey. Maxwell, so what do you think about this, about this affidavit? Um, it's interesting. That's all you got? That's all I got. <laughs> all right, so she actually wrote a book. Well, I mean, like, like, let me just stop you there, Bruce. I mean, like, you know,
1: like, you have to understand, like, you know, the the people that were responsible for the cyanide poisoning actually wrote in their letters to Jones, you know, although, you know, in her, you know, in their letters, she's known as Deborah, you know, Blakely. They wanted to fucking kill her. And you have to understand that. I mean, like, you know, like, These people really believed what Jones was... I mean, they were truly brainwashed. I mean, it's not brainwashing. It's beyond brainwashing. Like, they believed in a movement that didn't exist because they were that isolated. So the fact that she defected... I mean, and Deborah Layton was a very, very, very high-level person. And you have to understand, her brother was on the airstrip that was the only person ever held legally responsible for Jonestown. You you already went over that. (laughs) No, but I'm just saying, like, you know, like, she, she was at an extraordinarily high level. For her to defect, that pushed the community forward towards the punch bowl.
0: Yeah, she actually didn't ask me anything on Reddit. I'm going to read a few select pieces from that, which is pretty interesting. So she wrote the book, Seductive Poison. Hello, Reddit. I'm Deborah Layton. At just 18 years old and home from boarding school, I innocently joined the People's Temple and moved into their campus dormitory in Northern California. By the age of 21, I was a trusted aide to Jim Jones and the signatory for millions of dollars. In foreign bank accounts at the age of 24 and believing I was heading to the organization's tropical paradise, I realized I had just entered a concentration camp. Within weeks of my escape from Jonestown, I wrote an affidavit to the U.S. government requesting their help for the 900 plus people being held against their will in Jones's encampment. It became front page news across the country six months later and just four days before the tragedy, I was in washington d c giving testimony before state department officials requesting for help. after eighteen years of keeping secret who I was, I wrote my memoir seductive poison so here's and, i
1: mean and she's being she's being pretty honest, you know like it's not i mean she you know she wrote a book, but like, what does she have to gain? You know what I'm saying like You know, like.
0: So someone asked her, I hope this isn't taken the wrong way, but I find the circumstances surrounding the Jonestown tragedy completely fascinating. As someone who was in Jonestown, do you think it was Jim Jones's plan all along to commit this atrocity? She responded, It is not shameful to find the story so fascinating. Trust me, I continue to try to make sense of the losses. When I finished writing Seductive Poison, I was asked by a BBC documentary film crew to accompany them back to Guyana and into Jonestown. I was hesitant until the producer came on the phone and told me in his research he had come across a woman's dissertation about the history of Guyana that some 100 years ago, a white minister convinced his Amerindian flock to kill themselves and come back as white men. I realize Jones must have known this story. What do you think about that, Jr?
1: Well, I mean, like you know, I'm not surprised. I'm not. You know, Jones, Jones was very well versed in a, a lot of different things. And again, the fact the Layton family, the Moore family, the Truchet family, they were involved with the actual killing. So, I mean, you know, like, even though Deborah, you know, was able to scuttle away, I mean, like, you know, her brother, her own physical, biological brother, was the only person ever persecuted or held accountable for the deaths in Jonestown. What so, do you have to say to that? What is There's that? Speak to the level in which she was
0: and- yeah she's actually gonna mention him in a minute here so someone asked her about the white nights how often what exactly happened with them and do they does she think that people assume that last night was another white night and went along with it so she responded Jones began white night drills in an attempt to further weaken our will a siren would come over the loudspeakers at one or two in the morning waking us from our abysmal sleep. Jones's voice screaming, hurry, hurry, children, run to the safety of the pavilion. We could hear gunfire in the jungle, so we knew there were mercenaries out there. No one knew that, in fact, Jones had different young men on different nights, unbeknownst to each other, shooting off their guns. We would be kept hungry, thirsty, tired, and defeated in this pavilion until Jones determined we were safe again. We had these at least weekly. Towards the end, I actually hoped in one of these white nights, we were stood in line to take the poison and it wasn't a trial. Life had become so dreary and hopeless, death was a welcome escape. On the final and real white night, everyone knew that their life on this planet was soon to be stolen from them. So someone asked her if there was a lot of sex abuse in the community. She responded, People's Temple was a celibate organization. Having said that, Jones did rape men and women against their will. Well, Jones raped her. For the purpose of breaking down their sense of self and soul. Uh, Here's another important point she makes. Knowing what you know now. What would you say your very best life advice is? And she responded, no one joins a cult. No one joins something they think will hurt or kill them. People join political movements, social organizations attend off-campus dinner socials, believing they are mingling with like-minded people. It is often too late when one realizes they've been deceived. Although my experience is extreme, I saw this tendency again when I worked on the trading floor of an investment banking firm where invisible boundaries are crossed, believing the end justifies the means. When you believe in something and think there will be a great payout, whether in spiritual points or money, it is often hard to take a closer look and walk away from so much. At some point in all of our lives, we have been entrapped and did not know how to extricate ourselves. The less extreme and most common are abusive relationships. So she makes another point here. I escaped from Jonestown, which was an encampment Secured by armed guards, those who spoke honestly about wanting to leave were medicated and put in the feared medical unit from where they never returned. Viktor Frankl wrote about this in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. And I start my book off with his quote We who have come back from the aid of many lucky changes or miracles, whatever one may choose to call them, we know the best of us did not return. People were desperately afraid in Jonestown. Many took a stand against Jones and became examples of what not to do, for they were punished severely and often did not return the same as before.
1: Well, I mean, punishment, you know, within Jonestown, like, it was regarded as socialistic re-education, Bruce. So, I mean, like, they were either A, drugged, B, beaten, or C, they were both and you know, to the point where they weren't the people that that the population remembered them as. You know, you have to understand that like with this particular case, we're talking about a thousand people died. Most of those people that could say, Hey, you know, Frank was given this and given that and he didn't look right, they're not here now because they were forced to drink the poison at gunpoint.
0: Thousands of doses of Quaaludes, Demerol, Sacanol, Valium, and Morphine were found. And these drugs are incredibly addictive and also sedatives. And there were also more than 10,000 doses of Thorazine, which is an antipsychotic.
1: There were more like 15,000.
0: And Thorazine numbs the mind and prevents one from experiencing any strong positive or negative emotion. So basically, he turned this whole encampment into zombies. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and like,
1: your viewers might be like, hey, you know, like, fuck this, fuck that. But, like, you know, listen to the audio tapes where he's just, like, he actually educates people on what to say to the press, and then it's, hey, we're going to get our tetanus shot. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. So,
1: you know, I mean, like, you know, like, okay, you know, like, so, you know, like, I guess you're that much of a believer where you believe they actually got their tetanus shot, you know? So, I mean, like, you know, this is not, this is, this particular case is not, you know, controversial. it, it it's, I mean, we've made it controversial because we believe people came up and drank the Kool-Aid and they died. But it's not, it's not about that. It's about 900 people that were murdered and it, it was more than 900 people. And they had a voice. They were, they were people. I mean, you know, like you're one person. If you're listening to this podcast, you're one person. Think about all you've accomplished in your own life. And then, Multiply that times nine hundred. You know, like th- these were not stupid people. They, I mean, you know, like Jones might have been sick. He might have been drugged. He might have been, you know, incompetent because he was addicted to drugs. But think about the people. You know, and 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 you know, like when people say, "Hey, you, anybody could join a cult," I believe them because it's not about. The message, the overarching message of the cult—it's about how they got to you—that makes it that message. So, I mean, nine hundred people. Think about that: nine hundred people died within five hours, six hours, and and it doesn't matter if it was CIA. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if it was government. It. it almost 1000 people died within 5 hours how sick is that and then there are those synthesizers that try to minimize the difference that they died because of what they believed in
0: no yeah, it definitely, it's definitely messed up to downplay that aspect. Someone asked her about Larry Layton. For those who don't know, Larry Layton is a man who pretended to be a Jonestown defector and asked to leave Jonestown with Leo Ryan and the NBC News crew. And Layton opened fire on the plane that was supposed to carry people from Port Kaituma. That was Deborah to a,
1: Layton's brother.
0: Yeah. By the way. So someone asked her if she was related to him. This is her response. Yes, he is my older brother. He served over 20 years in prison for crimes a thousand of us committed. The only person held responsible for the massacre... Had I been in Jonestown when Leo Ryan came, I am sorry to say that I too would have believed he was there to hurt us and might have shot him, believing I was protecting my fellow prisoners. I wanted to leave desperately, but would never have left with him. We were so defeated and indoctrinated that the world the rest of you lived in was foreign to us. Larry believed that he was saving his wife, their unborn child, and all of the other residents of the encampment by sacrificing his own life. Life. I cannot defend what my brother did except to say that he would believe he was saving the lives of 900 people by taking the lives of the traitors. He had no idea Leo Ryan was going to be killed. At his parole hearing, it was the defector he shot that came to the hearing and asked for leniency. He also... He also said that it could have been him. The chief judge who sat for both of my brother's trials said Larry was only a small cog in a big machine. Many jurors begged for leniency. However, his sentence was mandatory life. I actually explain this much better and thoroughly in my memoir. It is too hard in this short a forum to explain, defend all of our actions. Someone asked her if she still spoke with his brother. She says, I see my brother regularly... I only wish my father had lived to see his youngest son released from prison. Someone asked her, how do you feel about the phrase that drink the Kool-Aid is such a popular phrase? Her response, it's a complete misnomer, because in fact 140 babies, parents, and senior citizens in Jonestown were coerced and murdered. Babies do not commit revolutionary suicide. Jones had it planned, we innocents had no idea. Yeah, so, and that's, that, that's, that's the truth, Bruce. I mean, like,
1: one-third of the population was under the age of 18. How do you, how do, you do that? I mean, like, you know, they all, quote-unquote, drank the Kool-Aid, but one-third of the population was under the age of 18. So were they responsible for I think they, they died? I mean, we're talking about almost 250 people that were under the age of 18 injected with the cyanide. Well,
0: and we'll get into this in a, in a dedicated podcast on the exact body count and death means, but weren't a lot of people also shot, like people that were running away, were gunned down? and
1: According to the official doctrine, there were only two people that were shot. Jim Jones and Karen Leighton. there are varying counts because, I mean, you know, like I think there were dogs that were shot. There was the monkey that was shot, Mr. Muggs. There were were a lot of people that were shot, I think, because I think at a certain point people got wise to what was happening. But according to the official account, there were only two people that were shot, Carolyn and Jim.
0: Someone also asked her to verify that statement that you actually mentioned earlier from Jim Jones, quote, what you need to believe in is what you can see. If you see me as your friend, I'll be your friend. As you see me as your father, I'll be your father. For those of you that don't have a father, if you see me as your savior, I'll be your savior. If you see me as your God, I'll be your God, end quote. She responded, yes, he said this all the time in the early days when older, very religious people were joining. So one more point on this AMA. Someone asked her, what was it that made you realize you had entered a concentration camp? Were there differences between the organizations as it operated in the U.S. versus Guyana so stark that they shocked you awake? How many others in Guyana do you know had come to the same realization? She responded, everyone in Jonestown knew. There were armed guards. For those who didn't abide, they were put on the learning crew, fashioned after Mao's cultural revolution and indoctrination. The second we pulled into Jonestown, 24 hours over the ocean, nine hours up a river, and two hours more by flatbed truck into the middle of nowhere, I knew we had all been wholly deceived. It was actually more like... 24 hours per boat. So actually, there's one more comment I want to read by her. Someone asked her, do you remember the first time you knew that the organization was not what you thought it was? Was there an event or was it a slow realization? She responded, early in my indoctrination, my inner voice called up to me that something wasn't right. However, at a young age, I was taught not to listen to this all-knowing voice. Part of my story is also about well-intentioned secrets handed down from my mother to me. Innocent deceit my mother believed would protect me from her shameful history. My mother was 23 when she escaped Nazi Germany. On her arrival in America, she decided no one needed to know about her Jewish heritage. She wanted to safeguard her future family's ascent into American society. If it could happen in Europe, why not here? I believe it is because of these secrets when my youthful questions were batted away that I stopped listening to my inner voice and instead began to look for black and white answers outside my family. Jones had all the answers, so it seemed. There were several more times I was afraid and wanted to leave, but my answers are getting too long. You will find all your questions answered in my memoir. Okay, so basically we went over all of these issues and events that transpired within Jonestown, and it does seem that making the claim that it was a concentration camp is not out outlandish as some people who have only seen little snippets here and there in the mainstream media would think at first glance no
1: i mean it, it's war like you know like when we do concentration part two like you know like we'll cover the actual brainwash that occurred within the concentration camp
0: so yeah we have plenty more topics to cover cia involvement jones's background and other aspects of this dark dark case in history that have not quite been given the attention that they deserve so once again if you like our podcast you can donate to our paypal just check the link in the description and check us out on social media facebook reddit twitter patreon and make sure you subscribe to the channel and hit the bell notification to get updates when we drop new podcasts this is bruce mcguire signing off Thank you. maxwell you're gonna sign off <laughs> yep signing off <laughs> actual powers we'll see you guys next time